Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Valve Disease Awareness Week. I'm Christine Jellis, and I'm an imaging cardiologist at Cleveland Clinic. And I'm really privileged to be joined by Dr. Paul Kramer this morning, where we're going to address some healthcare provider concerns regarding valvular heart disease, uh, particularly paying attention to some new and evolving techniques, um, which I think often generate quite a few questions. So good morning to you, Paul. I'm thrilled to have you here with me this morning. Morning, Christine. It's uh, great to do this again. So we are always thrilled to see our patients with valvular disease, and we certainly appreciate the referrals that we're getting from both primary care and also other specialists who are certainly um, providing excellent care for those patients in recognizing that they have valvular heart disease and then sending them along to us so we can further evaluate them and determine which treatment path they need. I think even since you and I went through training, this field has really evolved a lot. We have so many more percutaneous options now. Um, and as we talk with our patients, we, we really are giving them an individualized treatment plan. Um, we, we have some common questions that we're asked, and I think we might use today as an opportunity just to delve into some of those questions a little bit rapid fire, if I can put you on the spot, um, and get your thoughts upon uh, what are some common uh, themes that we see and what can we also convey to our patients. Um, so Paul, let's think about MitraClip first, if you don't mind. So I think MitraClip is definitely serving uh, an increasingly large group of patients. Maybe you would like to touch upon who those patients are who are ideal for MitraClip, perhaps some considerations that we need to be aware of, and then touching on those who perhaps are not going to be ideal candidates. Yeah, thanks, Christine. And um, certainly, as you as you noted, even within the past five years, we've seen such an increase in, in the therapies and innovations that we can offer our patients. And one of those undoubtedly is, is the MitraClip, uh, which is a very good option for, for a lot of patients. And so who are the patients best served with that device? Well, I think it's important at the outset to just think about the mitral valve disease in terms of, is it primary MR? Is it a problem of the leaflets themselves, for example, a prolapsing or a flail mitral valve leaflet, uh, or is it secondary MR that um, the left ventricle has enlarged and become dysfunctional, and as a consequence of that, the mitral valve uh, is severely regurgitant. And it's really that latter category of patients that's best served with the MitraClip, uh, those patients that have uh, enlarged and dysfunctional uh, left ventricles. Whereas most patients with primary MR, mitral valve prolapse, mitral valve flare, flail, are still going to be best served with surgery as long as they're acceptable surgical candidates. Um, the higher risk patients uh, will also get a very good result for, from MitraClip, uh, but, but surgery would still be the standard for that category of patients. So if we're thinking about the, the secondary MR patients that get referred to us, what are the, the questions um, that come to mind? Um, well, the first is, uh, you know, you really have to make sure they're on optimal medical therapy for their systolic heart failure. Um, and, and that has to be emphasized. Um, uh, and, and because if you look at the COAP trial, these patients were on really good guideline-directed medical therapy. Uh, so that's a lot of what we do is, is making sure that uh, in conjunction with our heart failure colleagues, 
um, that they really are on the best medications uh, for the, for their uh, systolic uh, left ventricular systolic dysfunction. I, and, and then from the imaging perspective, I, I think you want to make sure that this seems to be a ventricle that is uh, uh, are, uh, most likely to have been included in a clinical trial such as COAPT. Uh, so for example, if the, if the ventricle is very severely enlarged or very severely dysfunctional, that may be a patient that will do okay with MitraClip, but you may want to pause uh, and again, have these patients see your, your colleagues in advanced heart failure and say, okay, is this a patient where we should go with MitraClip or is this a patient where we need to think about advanced heart failure options such as LVAD or transplant? Um, so I, I think those are uh, the questions that kind of most common come up uh, when we think about what patients are best for MitraClip. It's the patients who have secondary mitral regurgitation related to left ventricular systolic dysfunction. Uh, and you really want to make sure that those patients are on the best medical therapies for their heart failure and that they're at a stage of their heart failure where they'll be best served with MitraClip versus other or, or advanced heart failure uh, options. In terms of the uh, anatomy uh, that's amenable to MitraClip, Again, that's something within a few years, there doesn't seem to be many obstacles there. Uh, so, you know, we used to look and say, okay, if there's a flail, how big is the flail? How big is the coaptation gap? I have to say with our interventionalists now and the newer devices, that really doesn't seem to come up uh, very often as a concern. Uh, those are just some initial thoughts that I have about thinking about what are the questions that commonly come up in terms of who's the best candidate for a mitra clip. I completely agree. And I think being aware of the limitations is always important, but we're we're very spoiled to now have this as a technique that we can offer patients, particularly those who are perhaps too high risk for surgery. A um, couple of things just to add, I think being mindful that a lot of patients will come along hoping to get a mitral clip, but we in that process of evaluating them may uncover concurrent uh, problems like coronary artery disease or other valve disease, which may make surgery uh, a more viable option for them. I think it's fair to say, though, that in a center of excellence with a lot of experience and high volume, you can achieve very low rates of morbidity and mortality for these patients who, uh, once we really delve into what is going to be uh, the right option for them to deal with all of their concurrent issues, surgery may end up being the best option for them. And I think that's where having a, a heart team is really critical. And certainly we are fortunate that we work closely with our interventional colleagues and surgeons. Um, maybe you're obviously in the leadership of our coronary care ICU as well. So you're well-placed and used to working in that team environment. Perhaps you wouldn't mind commenting on how we have our team approach here because I think that's really proven to be critical in the success of our programs. Yeah, thank you, Christine. And I, I think one of the things I enjoy about being an imaging doctor is also what I enjoy about being in the cardiac intensive care unit. And that is the, the, the team-based care that you get in both environments and that I'm, I'm really the generalist, uh, if you will, and, and, and trying to help the patient navigate uh, what's going to be the, the best approach for them in conjunction with the cardiac surgeons, with the interventionalist, uh, with the heart failure team. And so as it relates to the cardiac intensive care unit, uh, if there's a patient who has severe MR uh, and they're quite ill, um, you know, some of those patients are good enough to go to surgery uh, and some of those patients aren't. And, and then we've done mitral clips in some of those patients 
in the acute setting and had really good results. But as you said, this is always an individualized plan, uh, whether it's in the imaging clinic or the cardiac intensive care unit uh, with input uh, from, from many different people. And that's one of the great things about working at a place like the Cleveland Clinic is that uh, you really have everyone at the top of, at the top of their game, and, and I see my role is just trying to help uh, primarily to try and facilitate that uh, to lead to the best outcome. Oh, I completely agree. I, I think one of the scenarios where it's clear that we're not going to be able to use a mitral clip is in the setting of valvular stenosis or significant mitral calcification. Um, we really need to make sure that by putting on that clip, we're not going to exacerbate any further mitral stenosis. And I know that's often a question that we get is whether this person is going to be a candidate for a clip in that scenario. Do you mind commenting on the types of calcification, the location, how we determine that, um, what is going to preclude us from offering that patient a clip in the setting where everything else lined up that we should be thinking about a mitral clip? Sure. Yeah. And so I, I think, uh, as you noted, kind of the first question is, is the anatomy amenable to a mitra clip? Um, so if it's a severely calcified uh, leaflet or you're worried about a tear, I mean, that's going to be a conversation where you review the images with the interventionalist and say, anatomically, are, are you worried about putting a clip in this patient? Um, and, 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 and then the second question is, okay, if we put in a clip, are the hemodynamic consequences, is the subsequent mitral stenosis gonna, going to cause us trouble? And, and again, I think that's an individualized uh, treatment decision. Uh, I have to say, um, in a lot of elderly patients um, who have severe MR uh, and are symptomatic from it, um, when we put treat them with mitral clip, symptomatically, they're much better. Um, and even though their gradients after putting in the clip across that mitral valve, there may be some degree of, of, of mitral stenosis, if you will, doesn't really seem to symptomatically cause them uh, too much trouble. Uh, so that's something that I do think factors in, one, to the decision to put in a clip versus going to surgery, uh, and, and two, then whether or not to, to, to put in the clip or how many is, is what's the age of the patient, and do you think that the increasing gradients that, that you're creating are really going to cause trouble. I have to say overall, I don't know what your experience has been, but, but I don't see, I don't see patients coming back with symptomatic mitral stenosis uh, after these procedures. Look, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's something we worried a lot about in previous years. And we seem to have relaxed a little bit about that. Now, as you say, the patients with a slightly high gradient still seem to do much better when you resolve that mitral regurgitation. And often they're not patients who are particularly um, active anyway. So perhaps we can maintain them with relatively low heart rates so that that mitral stenosis doesn't become too much of a hemodynamic issue. Um, I, I think it would be remiss of me not to just mention that obviously in the setting of infective endocarditis, we would have a different approach to these patients um, for mitral regurgitation where debridement of that infective tissue obviously makes them a surgical candidate, ideally. Um, but I think certainly it's nice to have mitral clip uh, or the other different types of mitral, uh, percutaneous mitral valve interventions in our armament for uh, managing uh, valvular disease in these patients. One other question that we often get, and I'm gonna pivot across to the aortic valve now, uh, is about aortic regurgitation. I think we're pretty comfortable now about the use of uh, transcutaneous aortic valve replacement devices um, to deal with aortic stenosis. 
but Paul, perhaps I could ask you to comment on aortic regurgitation. Are we there yet for uh, the, the, the TAVA type valves? Um, and what are some considerations that may make that person a good candidate versus unsuitable for that approach? Right, thanks, Christina. That's often a question that comes up is, uh, is there a role of, of TAVR in aortic regurgitation? Uh, I would say, broadly speaking, we're not there yet. Um, as, we, as we touched upon before, in, in my role in the cardiac intensive care unit, uh, we sometimes have patients come in with acute, severe aortic regurgitation, uh, maybe from a, from a, a prior patient who's had a prior surgery with an aortic homograft and, and there's a cracked leaflet and there's flail and there's severe AR and, and they're an extremis. Um, and on individual patients like that, we've had fantastic results uh, doing TAVR. Uh, but generally speaking to someone walking into your clinic uh, with severe uh, aortic regurgitation, the standard there is, is still going to be surgical replacement of the valve. And I think that also just segues more broadly into how we think about transcatheter aortic valve replacement versus surgical aortic valve replacement uh, in 2021. Uh, I think that the clinical risks are still important in, in the sense, primarily the patient's age. So if it's a younger patient, we're still going to favor uh, a surgical approach. And in an older patient, we'll, we'll generally uh, consider a transcatheter-based option. Uh, so those clinical profiles is still, of course, important, but I think more and more in what's changed over the past few years is the consideration of the anatomy. So, and, and that relates to the patient with aortic regurgitation in terms of those patients will often have uh, an enlarged aortic root or an ascending aortic aneurysm. Um, and that's a concomitant problem that really needs to be, be dealt with uh, surgically. Um, or there, there may be calcium that either makes SAVR or TAVR more desirable. It may be related to the size of the iliofemoral vessels, the degree of aortic calcification. So I think, as you know, when we're reading these TAVR CTs, we sort of have this checklist uh, of anatomic considerations as it relates to uh, the best approach for the patient and concomitant lesions uh, to try and decide, okay, what's gonna be the best for this patient, uh, either transcatheter valve replacement or, or surgery. I think to add to that too is the patient group with bicuspid valves because often we're seeing these presenting in sort of middle age with stenosis, uh, but it's clear because of the asymmetric anatomy that perhaps they may be better served with surgical uh, valve replacement. Uh, and I, this gets onto another point I wanted to raise with you, which is about this lifetime care of the patient with valvular disease because we really want to make sure that any decision we make about intervention at one point in time sets that patient up for success long term. And I think back in the day when TAVAs were really reserved for the elderly and those with severe comorbidities, the long term plan became less important. And so now if we we're coming back to thinking about a valve replacement in, say, a 50 or 60 year old, we want to make sure clearly that we're giving them the best long term outlook perhaps getting in the biggest valve initially, perhaps that should be, um, we're more inclined to perhaps put a surgical valve in in that scenario, thinking about planning for a valve in valve as they get older. Um, can, I, can I ask your thoughts on that type of um, outlook, Paul, and how you use that in your practice? Yeah, yeah thank you, Christine. And, and as you highlighted, 
one of the things we enjoy about taking care of patients with valvular disease is it really is a lifelong relationship. So when we're seeing the patients, we're thinking about what's the best approach here in, in the decades to come. And, and then as I touched upon, I do think, you know, the, the age of the patient is very important. Um, for example, we, we don't really know about TAVR and TAVR, right? So, um, so as you said, in, in a younger patient, we would be more inclined to put in a surgical bioprosthesis, perhaps a bioprosthesis that's specifically designed to accommodate TAVR in, you know, 15 years uh, in, in the future. Um, and, and then I think that also relates to the timing of intervention um, because, you know, a bioprosthesis um, is a very good option for a lot of patients. Um, but in a way, the clock does start ticking when you, when you place it in terms of the, of the longevity. And what I would say is, as we've gotten better and better uh, at replacing these valves, be it through a transcatheter or a surgical-based approach, the, the threshold for offering intervention has also decreased. So, so I think in a patient who has severe symptomatic aortic stenosis, uh, it's very clear that that valve should be replaced. But I think now more and more in our practice, we use ancillary tests to try and inform the right timing of intervention. So if a patient's telling you they're asymptomatic, or are they truly asymptomatic? If you put that patient on a treadmill, uh, if they perform poorly on an exercise echocardiogram, that can be an indication uh, for intervention. If you check an NT pro BNP uh, and that's uh, markedly elevated, uh, that can be uh, another indication for intervention. So I think now in the imaging in the, in the valve disease clinic, we have these ancillary tests to sort of better inform uh, when we should intervene in aortic stenosis. Uh, and I would say in general, uh, the, the bar is, is moving lower and lower, but we still wanna have some objective data uh, to really provide the optimal timing for an individual patient of, of when to replace that valve. Because as you noted, we're usually making a plan for the next 30 years, not just the next five. Absolutely, and you touched on it well, that often these are insidious uh, conditions where it's easy for a patient to start minimizing their symptoms. Uh, but when you really tease it out and ask them, well, how does their exercise capacity compare to what they were doing two years ago, or put them on a treadmill and see how they compared it to their age and gender matched um, controls, it becomes evident that that person really uh, is symptomatic and may benefit from intervention. Paul, one last question for you, then I'll let you escape. Uh, we often get asked about the TAVR in the mitral position. Um, is this ready for prime time? Where are we at? And uh, is it a case of watch this space, but hopefully we'll get there soon? What do you think? Yes, so that's that's a great question in terms of um, percutaneous approaches for the mitral position. and. Uh, I'll touch upon that, Christine, and then maybe we can conclude by also uh, uh, talking a little bit about the tricuspid valve, which is even more wide open than, than the mitral space, I would say. So if we think first about dealing with the uh, mitral valve and percutaneous options, again, it's sort of what's what are the anatomic considerations? Um, and a lot of that is going to be based on the results of our uh, transthoracic and transesophageal echocardiograms in terms of, of how severe the dysfunction is, uh, be it stenosis or regurgitation is at a threshold that requires uh, intervention in conjunction with the symptom burden of the patient. 
and I think more and more uh, cardiac CT uh, in terms of planning uh, whether or not uh, it's it's feasible. Um, so where it often comes up, I would say, is in degenerated uh, mitral valve bioprostheses. Um, so again, I think this would be, uh, the percutaneous approach would be reserved for a patient who's not a candidate for a repeat cardiac surgery. Uh, and I would say that that is, uh, the results are, are, are seem quite good, at least in the, in the intermediate term, and the procedural success rate is quite high uh, in terms of putting in a transcatheter valve within the scaffold of the degenerated uh, bioprosthesis. And, and we can know very well from the CT scan uh, how that's going to look by modeling that and, and ensuring that we're not going to obstruct the neo-left ventricular outflow tract with that intervention, though I still think there's a lot to be learned in terms of what is the best cutoff um, and sizing uh, thresholds there. Uh, so, so that, I would say, um, is fairly well established. Uh, and, and similarly, I think putting a mitral valve uh, percutaneously within a mitral valve ring, uh, it seems like the interventionalists um, um, are doing quite well with that. Um, I think the cases that frankly are a little bit more challenging uh, are the patients in, in with severe MAC and, and then trying to figure out what, what the best approach for that patient is. Can, do you have a treatment option in terms of a percutaneous valve? Is this someone where you should reconsider uh, a high-risk surgery to try and to try and get the best approach. And, and those, as we, I think, have emphasized throughout this discussion, those are individualized uh, patient decisions that involve the input of the heart team uh, with the imaging cardiologist, the interventionist, the surgeon, uh, and, and the heart failure specialist um, as, as key members of that. Um, so I think there's, there's uh, uh, it's, it's, it's certainly um, a very exciting space, and, and I think there's been a lot of innovation there uh, within the, the past few years. And, and then I just wanted to also touch upon the, the tricuspid valve space, because I, I sort of feel that where we are with tricuspid valves now is kind of where we were with mitral valves four or five years ago, um, in terms of there's certain things that, that we're, we're continuing to innovate on the tricuspid side. It's reminiscent of, of where we were on the mitral side, where, where certain of these uh, procedures, such as putting a, a transcatheter valve within a degenerative bioprosthesis has, I think, become uh, you know, fairly standard. The patient can be discharged like the next day, <laughs> I've often seen. So I don't have, you know if you have any thoughts uh, just in terms of where you think we're going and in terms of the tricuspid uh, uh, regurgitation and, and in terms of which patients to select and what are some considerations that go through your mind uh, when you're seeing these patients in clinic. Yeah, it's a really good question because I think a lot of us have a list of these patients with severe isolated tricuspid regurgitation. They're often um, middle to uh, middle-aged to elderly women who are relatively small in terms of their body size. And traditionally, we've not sent these patients uh, for surgery lightly, you know, unless they were really symptomatic or we were seeing signs of liver dysfunction or there were issues with the right heart. And even then they were at that point higher risk. So I think to have a, a less invasive option for these folks where they can avoid open heart surgery is gonna be an absolute game changer. And I hope that with the knowledge we've gained from the development of the mitral options, that we will sort of skip ahead a little bit faster as these tricuspid technologies evolve. I guess being mindful that it tends to be a bigger annulus and there can be issues with 
you know, visualizing all three uh, leaflets and so forth from a technical perspective. But I think for us as imaging cardiologists, the opportunity to use 3D imaging is just phenomenal because we get a much better view of the tricuspid valve. And if, if the imaging hadn't evolved so well with 3D technology, I don't think we would be where we're at with the interventional piece. So they're so intertwined. And I think if we can continue evolving the, the imaging from our end, uh, hopefully to help our interventional colleagues, they'll uh, continue moving ahead in leaps and bounds, uh, which can only benefit our patients long term. Well, I, I think we probably need to leave it there. It's been great talking with you this morning. Uh, wishing everyone a happy Valve Disease Awareness Week. And hopefully we can do this again soon. Excellent. Thanks, Christine. This is great. Thanks, Paul. Take care. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen at clevelandclinic.org slash cardiac consult podcast.